Good morning, Anthem. Uh, Matt Johnson, I serve a couple times a month on the worship team here, and I lead a community group as well. Uh, they were in Matthew 22, 1 through 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. You may be seated. Good morning. On that note, <laughs> who else came here just prepared to talk about weeping and gnashing of teeth this morning? Uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. I have the privilege of teaching through this passage this morning. Um, if you have a Bible, open it up and kind of follow along with us as we go through this this morning. If you're new to our church, uh, we're, we're in the book of Matthew. Matthew is the first gospel in the New Testament. It's the first place you land where, where the book kind of divides between the old and the new. And if you look at the, the gospel accounts in the Bible, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, they're sort of like biographies of Jesus' life, the, these accounts of Jesus' life. And so we as a church have been going through the book of Matthew for about two years now. We'll actually wrap it up this year, by the grace of God. Um, but if you're new to our church in the last couple months, you know, we did some topical messages throughout the holiday season and then uh, into the new year and then jumped back in. To the book of Matthew. But one of the things I wanted to kind of let you know about who we are as a church, uh, if you're new with us, is more often than not, we do what you would call expository preaching. So our hope is that every week we're like opening up a book of the Bible. We're going verse by verse through books of the Bible and teaching verse by verse through them. And we sort of think that that's the way Jesus would want his church to gather around his name is around his word. And so plain and simply, that's kind of how we do it. Um, but the interesting thing about this is as you get into uh, like just teaching verse by verse through passages, like somebody, I, I, I had lunch with them the other day and they were saying something like, you know, churches just skirt around the difficult topics, you know, and, I, and I've been to so many churches that won't talk about hard things and and I said, well, you know, if you teach verse by verse through the Bible, you're bound to get to passages that nobody else wants to talk about. And today is one of those passages where I'm just like, 
you kind of, you feel the tension in the passage. It's harsh. You also, if you grew up in the church, you also know how this passage has been used in such a way to instill a ton of fear in people. But today's one of those days where we get into a passage that is super difficult uh, to teach through and wrestle with. And one scholar, one commentator that I was reading through with regards to this passage said this. He, he, he said that this parable of all the parables makes most scholars weak in their knees when they look at it. And I thought that was a really interesting comment. He went on to say that it's one of the more difficult of the parables to really parse out. And so that's awesome, but this is where we find ourselves today, right? Uh, in this sort of the, the, this third parable in this trilogy of parables that Jesus has been telling for the last couple weeks that we've been studying. And so the last two parables were super similar to this one, uh, sort of in context or in, in content. But it's interesting because what we're going to notice is that this parable probably isn't what it seems on the surface. Um, There's probably more to it. And so I want to look at some more difficult parts of this parable, this passage this morning, and dig into them a little bit more. And so will you pray with me? And when I say pray, I mean like, let's all turn our hearts to Jesus right now and let's just seek him and ask that his will be done this morning. Amen. Jesus, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in your name. We thank you for your church. God, we thank you for your blood shed on that cross for our sins. God, we thank you that it's only because of the work that you accomplished on our behalf that we're even here today, Jesus, that we even rally around you, that we place you front and center as King Jesus this morning because of what you have done for us, the sacrifice you've offered for us. God, we have a lot to be thankful for in the midst of a world just full of chaos. And I just pray this morning, God, that your peace would transcend all things. Lord, I pray this morning that your love and your grace would be sensed and felt and seen in this room, in this text, in one another this morning. And Jesus, we devote this time to you and we ask that you use your word to speak to the conditions of our hearts. And we give you this time, God, in your name, amen. So, Matthew 22, verse one, he says this. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables. And I'll stop there for for one second. So you remember, parables are not just kind of short stories, but parables are these stories where Jesus is trying to sort of reshuffle the furniture in our brains and reshuffle our worldview a little bit. There's tons of stuff that Jesus is trying to accomplish and sharing these parables the way that he does. And so if somebody comes here, a, a Buddhist, or they come here, a Muslim, or an atheist, a Jew, a Hindu, whatever, Jesus is kind of talking to all of us in this. If we would tune our hearts to him, if we would listen to him, there's something in this for all of us this morning. And Jesus wants to, to, to sort of challenge us and tell stories, again, that kind of reshuffle the furniture in our brain. If we spend time, if you've ever read a parable before, it's easy to read it and just kind of lock it away because we've read it before. But when you spend time parsing it out and really diving into what it is that Jesus is saying in these parables, there's so much depth to them. There's so much that Jesus is trying to address in the heart. And so Jesus is trying to challenge us in this. And so let, let me tell you uh, that the, the, these are like these stories, these parables that, that sort of crack you open and sort of make you question everything. I mean, it's just like there's so much here. And so Jesus sort of causes you to even doubt some of your doubts, like sort of make you question everything that, everything that you think you 
No, and especially for us that grew up in the church, parables are a way that Jesus really does get into the heart and question our true heart, our motives, why we do what it is we do. And so, um, again, in these parables, Jesus also sort of flips everything upside down. And so as we've been teaching through the book of Matthew, we've been talking about this kingdom, this upside-down kingdom of Jesus. And so these parables Jesus is using to give instruction to, to um, right now, the, these religious people, the religious elites. So he goes on, Matthew 22. He says that again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, and he says this. He says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. And so stop there again for a second. So when Jesus talks, of, talks about the kingdom of heaven, as Matthew references this here, it's not necessarily about heaven, going to heaven when you die. It's not necessarily kingdom of heaven in an eternal sense. The kingdom that he refers to is this word, um, basileia. And Jesus is sort of reframing the, this idea of the reign and the rule of God, right? In the world, in a person's life, the fact that the kingdom of heaven isn't something that we just attain later, but it's actually something that we partake in right now. And so when Jesus says this, he's not saying, like, let me tell you how you're going to go to heaven when you die. He's actually saying, let me tell you about what it looks like to live under the reign and the rule of God right now, how to take your money and put it under the, the, the reign and the rule of God, how to take your family, put it under the reign and the rule of God, how to take business and put it under the reign and the rule of God, how to put everything in our lives under the reign and the rule of God of the universe. And so this is what it looks like to be those people. You're either a person who comes into the kingdom of heaven, uh, not when you die in the future necessarily, but, but in the present. And so the question uh, of the parables is, how do you know, like, in the present, who's part of this covenant people of God? Like, who's actually in the kingdom? Who gets to partake in that? And so he says, let me tell you a story. It says in Matthew 22, 2 and 3, the kingdom of heaven, so the, the, the reign and the rule of God, may be compared to a king, he says, who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but what? They would not come. And so the reality is that, that all these people would have already RSVP'd for this feast. They would have already said, we're in, like, we'll be there. And then months later, the king decides, okay, now's the time, okay, go get them. And so he goes and he, he gets all the people who RSVP'd for this feast and, and, and all the people who said that they were going to come. And the people respond by saying, actually, we don't want to. I know we RSVP'd for it. I know we got the invite, but actually we don't really want to come. He goes on in verses 4 through 7. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and they went off, one to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Wow. <laughs> this is why scholars' knees get weak <laughs> with this passage. Because obviously in the story, the king is God. 
And he's sending his servants out to tell people about God and how he wants to get in relationship with them, like invite them to this feast. And what do they do? They reject him. And so he comes against them with troops. And it says that he destroys their city. He literally burns it down, which has this historical sort of reference for Jesus uh, because he's looking at Israel at the time and he's saying like, I'm literally coming to you with sort of a fork in the road, like an opportunity, a break in the road. I'm coming at you with a new way of being the people of God. Like the old ways have been great, but they're sort of retired. And when I was in Israel, um, personally, uh, you get to see firsthand like how the Jews um, uh, uh, celebrate the, the, the Sabbath or the Shabbat. And so it, on a Friday night to Saturday night, like the whole city, the whole country changes, right, for the Jews. It's like this is their Sabbath time. And, and so um, when you go to like get on an elevator in a building, you have a choice of choosing the Shabbat elevator or the regular elevator. And so if you choose the regular elevator, you can go into the elevator and you can choose the floor that you go to. But if you choose the Shabbat elevator, you might as well be ready to spend a ton of time in the elevator because it stops at every floor. Because for the Jews, the Sabbath is a time of rest where they do not work, right? And so pushing a button in an elevator is considered work. And so the Shabbat elevator stops at every single floor. So you have the option. You want the Shabbat elevator or do you want like the, the, the normal person's elevator, right? And so Jesus is sort of saying in this that this kind of religious like rigor, this kind of like, like religiosity that, that kind of works in order to like gain our favor in God like where we do things to earn God's favor is sort of coming to a close and there's this fork in the road. And now Israel, Jesus is saying, like I want you to accept me as the way, the way, the truth, and the life. In order to become part of the kingdom of heaven, you have to acknowledge that Jesus is the entry to that. And if you don't, God is actually going to be against you because you're literally taking your religion and the temple and all these great things and you're turning them to reject the Son of God. Like you're believing so much in your actions and what you can earn in God himself that you're rejecting the Son of God. You're rejecting your own story. And so Jesus is saying, if you do that, if you reject the Son, here's actually what's gonna happen. God's gonna send an army. And what's crazy is about 40 years after Jesus' death, 70-ish A.D., the Romans come and they destroy the temple, they, they destroy the whole religious life of Israel, they burn it all to the ground, never to be rebuilt again. And so the reality is he's saying, if you reject the son, then there's actually going to be a moment of judgment for you. Because you're rejecting the thing that I came to offer to the world to save them. There's a fork in the road for you to choose. And this is a message to the world that, that, that you need to embrace Jesus like now. And so in our hearts, like we need to be mindful of our hearts and our motivations. If we have religious ways of doing things, doing our devotions every day, not that that's bad, but doing them thinking that we're earning something by doing that in Christ is bad. Um, giving my time to the church, giving my money, like 
whatever you do and you think that it earns you favor with God, like you just don't understand. Like we receive Jesus and what he's done for us and the harsh reality is that if we don't, God is against you. It's only in Christ. And that's the message, the harsh message that Jesus, Jesus is, is uh, communicating. And so verse eight, he says, then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And listen to this. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found. And what's he say? Both good and bad. And that's the point right there. Like You think all these people are out because they're bad people, because of all the bad things that they do. You think they're out because they're bad, but yet Jesus is like, I know they live a bad life. They've lived a bad life. And Jesus goes, but here's what the kingdom actually looks like. Go and find the good and the bad. Like, I actually want everybody at this party, all the people who aren't worthy. Jesus is like, I got rejected by these guys. Now let's go get anybody into this party that we can. We're, we're literally gonna see why he does this. At the end of verse 10, he says, and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good, both bad and good, and what does it say? So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Why did he go out and invite everybody to fill the banquet? And this is why he does it, to fill the party with guests. It's such a rad little story when you think about it that God invites everybody into the kingdom. We love grace, right? Grace is legit. Like, I, I wish the story just stopped there, but it doesn't. He goes on in verse 11, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, friend, bro, right, brother, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And what's he say? The guy was speechless. The guy didn't even know how to respond. Like, what a line. He was speechless. Like, how did you get in here? You're not wearing a tuxedo. You're not wearing a suit. You're not wearing what everybody else in this party is wearing. Like, how did you get in here? And the guy couldn't come up with an answer. He could have said, like, oh, you know what? I just couldn't afford the suit. I couldn't afford the garment. Or I didn't know I was supposed to be wearing something different. Like, I just came as I am. But he doesn't give any sort of an excuse. He doesn't try to weasel his way out of it. And this is important. The guy's speechless. And so what does he do with him? Verse 13, then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. This is why people don't want to read this parable, right? <laughs> this is why they don't like reading. This is why it's one of the tough ones, because we in the modern sort of Western world don't like versions of God where he gets upset about stuff. We don't like that. We, we like the versions of the story where God sort of doesn't have any enemies at all, where God's like, 
the nice guy. We, we like the version of God where he's like the old uncle that's like sitting out in the garden. He just wants you to pay attention to him. And then if you give him a little bit of attention now and then and you throw up a prayer every now and then, he's like, oh man, I'm so, so glad I got to get in touch with Chris today. Like that's the version of God that we want. And that's how we often project God. But then you read a parable like this and you start to go, whoa. Like where in the world are we getting this idea of God that, that we've created? Because here's the deal. When we reject God, here's what we have to understand. When we reject him, we're not doing that. as just like these innocent little children fumbling around and trying to make our way through our life. We're actually rejecting God as adults, like who in our brains make conscious decisions to reject God. And then in that moment, really what we're saying is, we don't want you to have rulership over me. I don't want you to have rulership over me. I don't want you to have, to, I don't want to live my life the way that you have asked me to live it. We're actually saying, we're against you, God. And when you say that, you basically start believing that you're a God yourself, right? You're the ruler of your own kingdom. You make your own decisions. We don't want to follow Jesus. We don't want to repent of sin. We don't want to give our life to you. What Jesus is saying is, that's not just as, like some innocent act that you make. Oops. It's a deliberate act to actually choose to not engage the living God. It's actually an act of war, like in the heart and, and, and in the mind. And it's you saying, like, I want to live my own life. I, I, I want to be my own God. It's literally go back to the sin in the garden, repeat it all over again. It's ultimately saying, I want to be God. I want to know the difference between right and wrong. And so here's what we have to understand is this story is telling us something that's not as it seems. Something appears to be a certain way on the surface, but it's actually not as it seems, which happens in our lives all the time. Like, things aren't always as they seem, and, and that's really what the story does, is it says, I'm presenting to you something that looks on the surface like God's this mean guy, like God's somehow cruel because that's what our Western framework of God has told us. But I would challenge you to be really careful with what you think of God because the reality is when I choose to say, I don't wanna live under you anymore, then the actual, like the implication is of that is outer darkness, is what God said. It's separation from God eternally, is what he's saying. And so when we say to God, we don't want your light, or I don't want you in my life, then we have to understand that there's implications as a result of those decisions, because God is the one who gives us all the common graces that you and I receive. God's the one who gives us light, and so when we reject him, we actually refuse his light. We receive separation, like outer darkness. That's what this passage in a very harsh way is saying, but that was our choice. Like when we say to ourselves, we don't want you in, this, in my life, then the eternal implication of that is you're going to live without the common graces of God that only God can give you, and you choose to do that. And here's the beautiful thing about this, is if you look at this story, what it looks like on the surface, if you hone in on verse seven, is that God is just so mean. That God is such a gnarly guy. I can't believe that God could even be that mean, but the reality is, 
if you look at verses one through five, it's showing you this story where God is so gracious that he goes and he gives every single person a shot. Is that not amazing? That everybody has a chance. He's not this mean God up in heaven just waiting for you to do something wrong so he can zap you. He says, here's what mercy looks like. There was this Gallup poll a few years ago in the United States where they asked people what they're most anxious about after they die. 43% of people responded by saying, I'm nervous that God won't forgive me. 43% of a nation that is progressively becoming more and more indifferent with regards to God. And that's what the question of the story is, is that I'm nervous that I'm not gonna be given mercy And the first image that we get about God in verses one through five is that God is actually the God of mercy who goes out and God gives everybody a shot. He calls everybody and he says, come to the party. And these people would have already agreed to coming to the party. They would have already said, we're in, man. We're gonna be there. We're RSVP'd. And then he says, okay, it's time for the party. And then they reject him and they actually don't show up because they're too busy, right? They're going to work, like they're at home. And here's the scary thing about the story when it comes to you and I, because the story is told against religious people. That's who Jesus is dealing with, the religious elite, those who have it all figured out, who practice the law perfectly. And if you look back at the end of chapter 21, where we were at last week, verses 43 and 45, if you look back, there's a parable that's similar to this one, and it ends with this. He says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God um, is, will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. Verse 45, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And then at the end of this parable, parable, go into the verse that we'll go into next week, verse 15, it says, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. So who is it that Jesus is pointing the finger at? Who is it? It's the religious people, right? The the people that know that Jesus is preaching against them because he's saying to them, listen, you said that you were gonna come to the party. And when the time came for you to come and actually commune with the king, to actually come into the king's presence, you rejected it because you were too busy. And here's the practical warning for you and I. You're a Christian. Maybe a very religious person. You said when you got baptized, literally, when you got dunked, you said, hey, everybody, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. This is what I'm saying. I'm going to come to the party. And my question for you today is, have you come? Did you show up? When we do communion, it's us sitting there and we're saying, Jesus, I'm coming to the party. Like, I'm RSVPing. I'm going to be a person that follows the God of the universe with my whole life. And then the question of the story is, okay, if if you've come to the party or you said you're going to come to the party, have you actually shown up for the party? You said you were going to show up when you professed to be a follower of Jesus, when you committed to being a part of his local church, you said, I'm going to show up to the party. That was us saying that this is my God and I'll do anything 
And I'll sacrifice everything to serve him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the question that I just hear resonating in my heart while I read through this is like, have I shown up? Am I showing up? Because here's the crazy part of the story is that there are people who will say, I'm going to go to the party who don't actually end up at the party. That's the reality of the story because they're too busy. They're selfish. Their life gets the best of them. Everything else takes precedence over God himself. They're not focused on Jesus. They said they were going to do something. They're all about themselves. They're not focused on Christ. They made a promise, maybe even when nobody else was listening, and then they don't follow through with that. And then the invitation goes out from the king. And he asks us to make good on what it is that we said. Will you follow through? And then there's this, there's this category of people who just don't follow through. And that's what's scary is you and I can say a thousand times, like, I'm going to be there. Jesus, I will show up. We're going to be there. We're going to be there. But if you don't show up, the key is, are you actually following him? Are, are we actually following this? Do, do we have equity in this? Have you ever had a situation where somebody told you that they'd be somewhere and then they didn't show up? Anybody? At least one of you in this room has had that happen, right? What about a dire situation where you like literally waited for that person to show up? You needed them and you kept saying like, meet me here, come to this thing. Like, I'm expecting to see you and you expected that person to show up. In fact, you needed them to show up and they never showed up. And then you call them after and they're like, oh, I'm so sorry, I totally forgot. How's that make you feel? I actually needed you. You actually told me you were going to be there. I showed up and then you decided not to. And then your excuse was like, you just forgot. Like it's painful. And the reality is that you can say that you're going to be somewhere. Like that's super easy. But the issue is always actually showing up to the place that you said you're going to be. The issue is when the invitation goes out, when the rubber meets the road, you go, do I actually follow Jesus with my life? Do I actually follow Jesus with my family? Do I actually follow Jesus with my work? And every facet of my life, is it under the rulership and the, the, the rulership and the kingship of Jesus? And here's the reality is that the invitation goes out and the question is, are you going to commune with God? Are you going to be excited to meet with him? Are you going to actually follow God in your life at all? Is that something that actually gets you stoked today? Is that something that gets you pumped up? Is that something that gets you excited, like actually being with the God of the universe, communing with him, or is it just really a checking of the boxes for you in your life? There's two kind of hangouts you can have in your life. My wife and I will talk about this a lot, and this is by no means um, a, a slap in the face to anybody in this room. I love all of you. So um, I'll preface this by saying this. There are those hangouts that you go to that you put on your calendar months in advance. And you're like, I would not miss it for the world. Literally, leading up to that time, you're like amped that that day's almost coming. You know, 6 p.m. this night, I get to show up at this thing with these people, and you're so excited about it. And leading up to that moment, there's all this excitement and anticipation, and you 
get into the moment and you love every minute of it. And then even after the moment's done, you wish you could be back in that moment again. Like, do you ever have those events? Like right now, or maybe it's a date on your calendar. You just cannot wait for that thing to happen with the people that you get to do it with. But do you ever have those dates on the calendar with people that you don't really feel like hanging out with? (laughs) That sometimes feel like more of an obligation to you than anything else? Let's just be real. Anybody ever have that? And there's sometimes those feelings in your life of like, I have this thing and I'm going to show up and I'm going to go to it, but I don't necessarily want to. And I'm not going to give it everything that I have because I don't really care enough about this thing or these people to actually give it everything that I have. And when you think about God, when when you think about your relationship with Jesus, the question you have to ask is, which of those situations are your times with Jesus? Is it obligation and something that you'll just do because you know you need to do it? Or is it the thing that gets like the best of your time that you're just amped up to go take part in and you can't wait to go spend time with Jesus, like to actually draw near to the Lord? Look at verse three. It says, he sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. That's the question of your life right now, is that God is literally calling you. And this is the great thing because God himself actually is the one who calls us, amen? Like, he's called us. He he made the first move. Like, don't forget that. Sometimes it's, you and I sort of perceive our salvation in this particular way where we sort of ask questions like, did I choose God or did God choose me? Like, which one? But I'll remind you this morning that God made the first move, that God chose you. In fact, God sent people out and he called you. And there's this group of people who respond in this parable. And there's a group of people who are passive in this parable. But the story never says that he didn't call people. He said that everyone got a call at some level. And so when we begin to think about our salvation, like God gets the glory for our salvation because even if we say, yeah, man, it was, a, it was a summer camp when I made this decision to follow Jesus, or it was with my parents and I was five years old. Like, this story is saying, yeah, but recognize that that was a response to something that God actually did, that God actually ordained. And the story is saying that there's things that are not as they seem, that, that God is literally so good that he actually gives us a call, that he looks to us and he says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you an opportunity to cut through all the nonsense in your life and to actually come and commune with me. Like, I'm going to send my son. I'm going to send people out to call you and to invite you to actually believe in me. And so some of you are sitting here maybe as a skeptic this morning, and you come up with all these hypothetical scenarios in your, in your mind But here's the dangerous and scary part about the story is that you and I think that we've got all this time in the world, that we can kick the can down the road with God. We think, don't worry about it. You know, one day I will consider giving my life to Jesus, maybe in a year. By then I'll be able to figure out whether or not I like it or not. And here's the reality is that this doesn't get to be your own timeline. It's on God's timeline. Because there actually may come a time, listen to me, there may come a time 
where the invitation stops and your life is over. When Heather and I make dinner for our kids, some of you with teenagers might get this, there are nights where we say, guys, dinner's ready. Like, come get dinner. And so they stop what they're doing on the really obedient good nights, right? They stop what they're doing, they come into the kitchen, we sit down, and we have dinner. But as parents, do you know those nights where your kids say, I'll be down in a second, I'll, I'll be there in a few. But what if they said, Dad, I'll come when I'm ready. What? <laughs> huh? You're like, come again? <laughs> what if they said, thanks for making an amazing dinner, Mom. I'll be down in a week to partake in it. I'll consider what you're offering me in a month. <laughs> but the reality is that you aren't guaranteed a day or a month or a year. And the reality is that eventually your life will end. The meal will not be there anymore for you to partake in. And so why wait? And so you've got to start thinking about your life and go, man, is this something that I should give myself to right now? Because I don't have all the time in the world. And the beautiful thing about this is the way that God puts forth this call. But then he's got these people that go out and actually do the inviting, these servants that he sends out. He says in verse four, he sent other servants. And so how do people hear about the love and the grace of God and what God's done for us through Jesus? They hear about that by the servants that go out. That's me, that's you. And I often think about back on my life and I feel so grateful to the people that the Lord orchestrated to share the message of Jesus with me when they did. Like the faithful servants who carried the call to share Christ with me and it changed my life for eternity. But here's my fear. If like, I'm gonna be totally honest with you. The more and more I get to know our church, I know a lot of people in here that share Jesus with a lot of people. And as a pastor, that's like, it's so rad to hear the stories about people who are, are proactively going out and sharing Christ with others. But sometimes, it's easy to fall into traps in our life, and it's easy to get discouraged because there's this feeling at times that there's a large percentage of the population of people that call themselves followers of Jesus who don't ever interact with people that do not know Jesus. And this whole story is built around this group of people who go out and tell some people. There's this invitation. There's this feast. There's this celebration. Don't you want it? Like, our hearts should actually pump for these opportunities. We should constantly be saying to ourselves, man, think about my friend group. Think about the time that I have in my calendar. What does my week look like? Am I actually going to go and tell anybody about this? Because You might not be here tomorrow, but there's an amazing opportunity for you to go share with people today. And when I think back on my life, unless a handful of people did the most awkward and uncool thing they could have done by coming sharing Christ with me, I don't know where my life would be today. Like, people literally put themselves in situations that were, they were the most uncool people ever to come to me and say, like, 
Do you know who Jesus Christ is? <laughs> what an uncool thing. And to think about how all those perceptions really form our minds in such a way that we resist those opportunities to step into those situations. I'll be really honest with you. As a pastor, I hate one question that people always ask. What do you do? I hate that question. Because it always happens in the worst of times. It happens on an airplane when I've got a book in my hand and I'm like, I just want to read. I don't want to talk to anybody around you. And the guy next to you is like, hey, so what do you do? Oh, my gosh. Like, I know in that moment that it can't just be, I'm a pastor. I know that that conversation's gonna be extended because the guy's gonna have a lot of questions. Either like, that's really cool, I'm a believer, you know, and he's gonna wanna talk about the Lord. Or the questions of like, I hate the church. I've had so many poor experiences. And now I know this has just turned into work, right? (laughs) And so there's so often times in my own life where it's just like, I wanna put my head down, I don't want you to talk to me. Like, I want to get the stuff done that I have to do. I want to focus on me right now. And then there's those moments where, like, the Lord breaks in and somebody asks that question, like, what is it that you do? And it's in those moments that, like, I have this decision to tuck my face, to focus on me, or to follow through with the amazing gift of this invitation that God has given me. Like, we get to invite somebody to a feast that that they don't even know how good it is, and yet some of you in this room do. And so this is a story, it's not about necessarily just pagans and people that are far off from God and and people that just need to repent from their sin and, and people that are afraid of the party. This is a story that goes to the religious, the people who think that they're in. The ones who think they've done everything they should and deserve a seat at the table at the party. And this is why the Pharisees get mad. You guys have to understand that what's happening in these chapters right now in Matthew is setting up for Jesus' execution. They're frustrated because Jesus is pushing back against the religious institution. He's saying things that nobody else will. He's calling himself king, and he's calling others to follow after him as the son of God, the Messiah, and he's gonna lay down his life to forgive the sins of the world. The the Messiah that they've been waiting for is the one that they will reject because he didn't come in the former fashion that they expected him to come. And so they go on with their lives. They're busy. There's too much to do. Get out of my hair. I don't have time for that. And they reject the one that had the most potent gift to offer them that anybody in all of history has ever been able to offer them. And we have this crazy privilege to invite people to this feast. And I'll end with this. The end of the story gets really gnarly because there's this guy who shows up without this garment on. This guy who's sitting there at the wedding, knowing that he's got a different garment on than everybody else around him. And hear this, everybody shows up to the wedding, everybody from the streets, the bad and the good, show up to the wedding, and they're wearing the proper gear, but this guy doesn't have it. None of these people had time to go home and change, right? (laughs) Show up, but they've got the garment on. Where did they get the garments? They got the garments from the king. The king was handing them out. The king 
provided clothing to every single person who walked in, but then he finds this guy. And this is where the gospel is different. We talked about the fact that the love of God is unconditional, but listen to this. Check it out. The love of God isn't unconditional because the love of God cost the king everything. Everything. God had to sacrifice his own son. God had to give you clothes at his own expense so that you were able to be fit for the party. You don't, just to get, you don't get to just come in for free. It's free for you, but it costs the king everything to give you the garments that he gave you so that you could be part of the party. It cost the king everything. It cost him his son in order to garment you to give you clothing so that you could show up to the party in the first place. And here's someone at the party who wanted to be there on what? He wanted to be there on his own terms. Expecting that he'd done all the right things and he deserved a place at the party. And the king goes, everybody else, even the worst off in this room, the tax collectors and the prostitutes have the right garment on, but you do not. And the Pharisees realize that he's talking to them in this moment. Those that think they have it all figured out, those that have learned to clothe themselves and get by with their life, those that have placed their own religiosity on themselves as this garment, hoping that it will save them and get into the feast, and the king goes, no, you actually rejected me. And so the harsh part of the story is how it ends, right? Then he gets bound up and he's cast into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like, I'm not even going to go into that today. But I will ask you this question. Who wants to live eternally separate from God? I don't care what the details of that look like. Eternally separate from him when he's invited you to the feast. And not only has he invited you, he's prepared the feast He's actually given you the garments to wear his righteousness so that you can come partake in the feast and find yourself fit to be with him. And very simply, like I'll leave you with this this morning. Like there are some of us in this room that will just flat out reject him. There are some of this, us in this room who think we've done all the right things to get there, but our hearts are distant from God, and in essence, we've rejected him anyway. And there's some of us in this room that have had these radical conversions in Jesus, where somebody came from out of nowhere and did the most uncool thing to say, like, do you know Christ? Can I share a little bit about you, with you, about sin and repentance and forgiveness in Christ and salvation, what it means to partake in this gift and have a seat at the table that God has offered you. Can I share that with you? And there's some of you in this room that know those people that came to you and shared that gift with you, and it radically changed your life forever. And my question is, why don't we feel the propensity to go share that with others? How easy is it for us to settle into our own lives, to tuck our phases down, to do our work, to build our lives, to create our kingdoms, and neglect the one true thing that grants us access to the feast. And so where are we today? Because the call is to every single person in this room. There are some of you that realize 
Your religiosity is not getting you very far in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is calling you this morning. He wants to clothe you, clothe you with his garments, not the ones that you've tried to create for yourself. The other call is to those of you that just don't know Jesus. And for the first time this morning, you're like, what? There's an invitation? There's a feast? Like, he, he sacrificed for me so that I could be granted eternity with him? Like, I get an opportunity to partake in that? Yes. Yes. And for all of us in this room, there's this great call that as we leave these doors, I say it every single week, you are the hands and feet of Jesus. You'll either choose to live your life hyper-fixated on your world, or you'll lift your eyes up and actually see the world that God's placed you in and look for the opportunities to invite others into this feast by the same grace that you were given to have a seat at the table yourself. Would you guys stand with me? I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. bow your heads. I literally sat in my office this morning and I was praying for you guys. Like I pray to God that we are a people just overwhelmed by the grace and mercy of God. The invitation that he's given us. What drives us is not trying to do the right thing, trying to clothe ourselves in these garments to make ourselves look right so that people know that I'm a Christian because of what I do, while having a heart void of actually knowing God himself. Like, I pray this morning that there be an awakening of your heart to a realization it is no small thing that the God of the universe saw you. It is no small thing that the God of the universe saw you enough to even impress upon the hearts of his people to send them to you. To invite you into this journey with Jesus. And for some of you this morning, you've never taken that step. I'll invite you this morning. Man, you want to give your life to Jesus, it's so simple. The word says if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. I believe it's that easy. To confess him and you believe in him. This morning he wants to give you the garments. He wants to clothe you in righteousness. Cast all your sins as far as the east is from the west find yourself forgiven and set free. Be able to take a deep breath this morning and know that no matter how gnarly your past is, that God has covered over it with it, the blood of his son Jesus on that cross in order to grant you new life. And he's offering it to you this morning in Jesus' name. But I want to end by praying for the church in this room.
because it's so easy for us to fall into this trap, to become the religious elite, to do all the things for God but have hearts void of God. And I pray that isn't us, church. I'm praying for like a new fervor and a fire to be ignited in us like no other before. Man, the last two years, the enemy has worked real hard to quench that fire, hasn't he? To stomp it out, to cause political unrest and a pandemic and all the things going on in our society to put people in a place of just like becoming sort of despondent, passive, just kind of backing down and not wanting to engage the fight. But this morning, I'm praying that Jesus births a new fire in us because the world needs it. The world needs it. You're the servant that he sent. We pray for us. Jesus, I thank you so much for your church. I thank you, God, for the immense sacrifice that you paid for her, Lord. To think that you love us, the God of the universe sees us and knows us. It gives me so much peace. So this morning, we offer up our lives to you, Jesus, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. And I ask, Jesus, that you would burn that fire within us, Lord. As Jeremiah talks about that fire in his gut that just cannot be put out, that he had to do what you told him to do. I pray for us, Jesus, that that fire would burn, that you'd continue to stoke the fire, to send us out, to invite others to become part of this feast, Lord, to spend really eternity with you. And Jesus, I pray your blessing on each person here, God. Remove the shame and the guilt, the condemnation, and the things that church and religiosity have just piled on us for years. May we find ourselves sort of bare and naked before you this morning saying, this is what I got, this is what I've done, this is who I am. By the grace of God, cover me, Jesus set my feet upon a rock and give me new life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.